Amen. If you would join me in Psalm 39, that's going to be our passage of Scripture today. You can find that on the Bible that's there in front of you in the pew on page 390. Page 390. I got really great news uh, this past week. Um, We had learned um, about two weeks ago, 13 days ago, that my dad I had some really concerning signs on a recent scan. Looked to be tumors uh, in around his lung and around his kidney. Uh, and then I flew to be with my dad as he went to a doctor's appointment that following Friday. And at that doctor's appointment, really all they could confirm is, we're pretty sure you have cancer. But we don't know how bad it is. We don't know what type it is yet. And we'll hopefully know that as we get more results on Tuesday. And so really from about Friday to Tuesday, I was expecting uh, the other shoe to drop. I was kind of living, waiting uh, to receive news that my father only had months to live or days uh, to live. Uh, It really put everything in perspective very, very fast. Suddenly it was crystal clear uh, what mattered most. It was painfully obvious what needed to be done, and what could be left undone. Thankfully, the news came on Tuesday morning uh, when my dad went to the doctor that uh, the cancer is the type that they feel is very manageable, that they'll be able to treat it. It won't uh, result in any difference in his quality of life or the length of his life. Super thankful. So thankful. I appreciate prayers from so many of you. When Pastor Eric and I got together and scheduled out messages for the first six months of this year, we had no idea that I was going to be walking down that line when we penciled in for the month of March a sermon series titled 30 Days to Live. Um, and I didn't, really, I didn't really promote that sermon series last week because I didn't know if I could do it and not get really emotional. Um, the idea of this series of messages is we want it We wanted to ask, if you were told that you only had 30 days to live, how would you live? What would matter and what would be important? And our hope is that over the next few weeks, we'll look at the life of Jesus and the way that he lived. And that'll inform the way that we ought to live, whether or not we only have 30 days or 30 seconds left to live. And Psalm 39 is a familiar passage to me because it's one that I've preached from numerous times at funerals over the last 20 years. It's a passage of scripture that helps us realize how short life is and how we need to make the most of every day that we are blessed with. So turn with me to Psalm 39 if you haven't found your way there yet. And let's begin reading in verse 1. I said... I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle. While the wicked are before me, I was mute with silence. I held my peace, even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me, and while I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. David is facing some type of adversity. We don't know specifically exactly what moment it is that he's in, 
We're not sure if it was right after the death of his son, right after one of his sons had betrayed him, right after uh, or right before he is about to go into some major battle. But there is a, a challenge. There's a life-threatening challenge before David. And while he's pondering this, he's quiet. He's thinking to himself. He's pondering. And some of you no doubt have been through a situation in your life where there's something that's happening and you aren't talking about it because you're not ready to talk about it. You're still thinking on it. David is thinking on it. He's holding it in and then it finally comes spilling out. And David expresses himself as he often did in songwriting and poetry. And it's recorded for us here. Look at verse 4. This is what David says when he finally speaks. Lord, it's a prayer. Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days? That I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but a vapor. Selah. Selah means to pause. And in music, uh, musicians have a, a mark or marks for a rest. It's a, it's a moment where they wait. It's a moment where they stop playing the instrument. It's a moment for silence or for the previous music to carry forward. And this would have been part of the, the music that is being written here, but also it's, it's a moment to consider. And by the way, while we're singing words on Sunday morning, I know that it can be tempting for your mind to drift and to wander onto lunch plans and ball games and that kind of thing. But I hope that you sing considering the words that we're singing. David pauses and he wants us to consider the things that have been said David has said, God, show me my end that I may recognize how frail I am. You know that that feeling when you're sick and suddenly you just can't function, right? That feeling when you're sick and you can't just do the basic tasks of getting out of bed, right? You're helpless. Perhaps you've felt it more severely when your child is sick or a loved one is sick, and you feel so powerless to do anything to help them. David says, Lord, help me to understand just how weak I am, how frail I am. And then David gives us two visuals of what our lives are like. Um, I had to do some measuring this weekend, not for a task that I was looking forward to or wanted to, but I had to get the tape measure out and find how big the opening is for a refrigerator to buy a new one. And when we went to the store, we had our measurements because we knew we can only buy a fridge that fits in this space. Back in David's day, they didn't have a tape measure to get measurements with. So what did they use? They used a couple different terms of measurement that you probably come across if you've read your Bible. They used a cubit which was the length from the elbow to the tip of the finger. And they used the handbreadth. And they'd measure how many handbreadths. David is saying, God, you've made my life like the smallest of measurements. 
God, you've made my life like inches on the tape measure. You've made my life so small, so short, so insignificant. Then he says that man in his very best state is nothing but a vapor. It's a vapor that's here for a moment and gone. Like that aerosol that you spray and you can see it for just a moment and it's gone. That is what our lives are like. They go so very quickly. And because David has grasped the brevity of life, it's clear to him the vanity of life. Because he recognizes how short it is, he can easily see how meaningless it can be. Look at verses, uh, verse 6 with me. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Another translation of that would be in a vain show. Every man walks about in vanity. There's a lot more of this type of language in the book of Ecclesiastes, which talks about how much of life is just vanity. It's meaninglessness. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. Did you get busy this week? Probably all of us had at least a one moment where we were running behind or in a hurry, busy for something that right now maybe we can't even remember what the big deal was. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. When we're clear on how short life is, we're clear on what really matters. Or are we? I do not enjoy country music. I know that perhaps some of you do. I don't fault you for it. But I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. I lived there until I was 12 years old. And everywhere I went, country music, country music, country music all the time. And then I moved when I was 12 uh, to Virginia Beach. Spent my teen years in Virginia. If I'd spent my teen years in Nashville, maybe I'd be more of a country music fan. Apparently that's when you really form your music taste is in your teen years. Not a, not a country music fan. And even though I'm not a country music fan, and even though I was living in Virginia at the time, when Tim McGraw's single came out um, in 2004-2005, I couldn't escape it. Because it played all the time. And maybe you remember the lyrics. He's, he's talking about his friend who finds out that he's dying. And he asks his friend, what's it been like? And he says, I went skydiving. I went rocky mountain climbing. I went 2.0 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. Just incredible lyric writing here. I mean, just <laughs> amazing stuff from Tim McGraw, right? And he said, I hope... You get the, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. Now that is the chorus that I am familiar with, that I heard nonstop, that I couldn't stand, that I didn't like. And if you like that song, that's great. You know, no, no, no problem, no shame to you, okay? Um, but looking back at that song, when I was prepping for my sermon, there's another line in that song I didn't even realize. He said, this guy says, I finally read the good book. And I took a good, long, hard look at what I'd do if I could do it all again. So even Tim McGraw, writing a country music hit, writing about a guy who recognizes he's only got a little while to live, 
even he recognizes that this is a moment for serious consideration of what really matters. David's clarity helps him see the vanity of life, and then it points him to the Lord. And that's what the rest of this chapter is about. Let's look at verse 6 again. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. God, what am I waiting for? What am I hoping for? What am I looking for? My hope is in you. Friend, let me tell you that the only hope you have, the only option, the only chance of rescue that you have is Jesus. It's only through him. Um, I'm a little bit more familiar with this now after the past week, but when someone finds out they have cancer, doctors have a whole host of treatments that they can do. There's a new repertoire of the options. And when someone finds out they have cancer today, it's not like finding out you had cancer 20 years ago or 40 years ago because we have more treatments today. We can remove the tumor. We can do radiation. We can do chemotherapy. We can do immunotherapy. Some of you have experienced these. You've walked through these. It's a wonderful thing that we have all of these treatment options for cancer. Because one treatment option doesn't work for this person, a different one doesn't work for that person. But friend, let me tell you that when it comes to the cancer that is sin, there is only one treatment option that all of us must have. There aren't many paths to wholeness or healing. There is only one path. There is nothing else to wait on or hope for. There is nothing else to put our trust in. It is only in the Lord. There's only one treatment for the cancer of sin. There is only one escape from our transgressions, and it is God's forgiveness. Now, I'm afraid that you might hear me say those things and think, okay, I get you, Pastor Daniel. The only way to escape the punishment for my sins in the afterlife is Jesus' forgiveness. That's not what I'm saying. That's part of what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is the only way to treat the cancer of sin is through Jesus. And that doesn't just come to bear in the afterlife, it comes to bear in this life, right here, right now. I don't want you to simply escape the punishment of sin in the next life. I want you to escape the effects and the impact of sin in this life. I want you to look at what David prays in verses 9 through 11. I was mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. David paused and didn't speak too soon because he recognized that it was God that was a part of the catastrophe he was facing. He was careful that he was not accusatory toward the Lord. He was careful that he was not disrespectful to the Lord. He was biting his tongue because he was not happy with God. Because it was you who did it. Remove your plague from me. 
I am consumed by the blow of your hand. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is a vapor. This, this chapter takes a turn here because David is saying, God, it's you. You're behind this, this pain, this suffering, this challenge that I'm facing. But he's also very clear on why. Because verse 11 says, With rebukes you correct man for iniquity. And you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Why does God allow suffering in our world? Pastor Dustin preached on this to great effect a couple of weeks ago. But I want you to recognize that the reason life is not perfect and the reason that life is hard is that we are lost in our sin. And God has engineered this world. He has engineered this life to be unsatisfying because we are built for something far greater than all of this. Do you know how we found my father's cancer? He was incredibly sick. He got pneumonia. And he couldn't get better. And they sent him in for a scan of his chest. And it revealed the cancer. When my father was sick, I wanted him to get better. I wanted him to be back to himself. I'm glad my dad had pneumonia. So that we were able to find the cancer that lurked beneath. Friend, if this life... Everything went along without any problems, without any challenges. If we were constantly content, we would not strive and look for something greater. Everything in us cries out for second life because that is what we are built for. We are meant for so much more than this. We want more. We desire more. We crave more than this world has to offer. The hope of Jesus does more than save you from hell one day. It can save you from the hell on earth that we live in day by day. It saves you from the meaninglessness and the vanity. It saves you from the shadow life. I've got a friend who learned he had cancer some time back. And the the way that he learned he had cancer is his dog jumped on his stomach while he was sitting on the couch And that's never pleasant, right? But it hurt really bad. And he felt his stomach and something felt off. So he went to the doctor. If something feels off about this life, that's because it's supposed to. Because we were built for something greater than this life. We were built for something far better. And the worst thing that could happen to us is we walk through this life completely oblivious to the fact that there is this brokenness that we must escape from. There's a cancer in all of us. And the pain of life reveals it and drives us to the Lord so that it can be taken out. David is simultaneously aware of this and also recognizes that it is God who is his hope. He not only says, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Look at what he says in verse 8. Deliver me from all my transgressions. 
David thought about it for a moment, and instead of accusing God and blaming God, David recognized that the real culprit was his sin and the sin that infects every one of us. There's a cancer in all of us, and we need the Lord to take this cancer out. If we do that, we realize that this life is just the beginning, that we're meant for more, and we can live the days ahead in a much more meaningful way. So I want to circle back to verse 4. Because in verse 4, David prays, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. And it could be that David is just saying, Lord, help me to know how many days I've got. Help me know how many days are ahead. Help me to know that this life is short. But he's also saying, Lord, help me not just to number my days, but help me make my days count. Help me see the end as in the destination, the purpose, and the meaning of these days. Help me see what this is all about. You've probably heard someone say that, man, life is a journey. It is. But where are we headed? David says, Lord, help me see where I'm headed. Help me see where I'm headed so that I can live these days. Friend, I want you to know that God shows us that. That he shows us our end. He shows us our purpose and our meaning. There's not a place in the Bible that you can turn to and crack some code that tells you the day you're going to die. But the Bible does show us what the meaning of this life, this existence is. What it's for. What its end is. And not only does the Bible tell us that, the Bible also gives us the supreme example of how to live making your life count. In John 17, Jesus has just had the Last Supper with the disciples. And he goes to the garden to pray. And the opening words of his prayer in John 17 are, Father, the time has now come, or the hour is here. And those words are meaningful because throughout Jesus' life, we see that there are multiple moments where he's on the brink of death. Not because he lived carelessly, not because he was addicted to, to taking risks, but because there were people who wanted to do him harm. And very early on in his ministry, when he stands up and he preaches in his hometown, and he says, all of these prophecies are about me, it tells us that the crowd wanted to throw him off a cliff. I'm sure that there have been some times I've offended you with something that I've said in Sunday morning service, but can you imagine if I said something so offensive that everyone here in the crowd decided together we're going to throw Pastor Daniel off a cliff? The people became so offended and upset at what Jesus had said, they were going to throw him off of a cliff. But the passage says, but he passed through the crowd because his time had not come. Or multiple times when Jesus was teaching or preaching in the temple and the Pharisees wanted to arrest him then. They wanted to plot to kill him then. But they didn't for they feared the people and his time had not yet come. Jesus had supernaturally avoided death and detection. He had used wisdom to not walk into situations that would have been foolish. He constantly avoided death until 
John 17, where he says, the time has come. And when he finishes this prayer, he walks directly to the person who is betraying him. He walks directly to the crowd that is arresting him. The crowd that will take him and torture him and kill him. And it isn't that Jesus suddenly got careless. It isn't that Jesus needed a better security team. It's that Jesus chose to walk towards the cross. There's a Latin phrase, suis sponte. And that phrase means of one's own will or accord. And it's used in legal settings to refer to someone who is of their own will, giving up a right or giving up a right to defense. It's also the motto of the 75th Regiment of the Army Rangers because it means I volunteer. Of my own will, I give myself to this. To be in the Army Rangers, you don't have to volunteer for the Army. You've got to volunteer for the Ranger training. And what they want to make clear is nobody's here because they were forced to. You chose this. Jesus goes to the cross not because he was trapped, but because he chose it. He went sua sponte. He went of his own accord and his own will. No one could force him to the cross. He could have any moment been freed. He could have any moment overcome and obliterated those who were killing him. He went to the cross willingly. And so Jesus' entire life was working towards that moment when the time had Jesus knew his end. He not only knew when, he knew why. He knew where, he knew how. And he lived his entire life on that mission, headed towards the cross. Because Jesus had full control, and because he knew full well how he would die, when he would die, why he would die, Jesus knows how to live like you're dying. Jesus knows how to live in the moment. Jesus knows how to leave a legacy. And from this passage we see, David's prayer is answered. Lord, help me to show, my, show me my end. Help me to know the purpose of my life. Help me to know that my life is short and how to make it count. And God shows us that in the life of Jesus Christ. And over the next several weeks between now and Easter Sunday, we're going to look at the life of Christ and how he lived with a clear purpose and a clear mission. But it might be that here this morning, as we start on this journey, you recognize that you're living aimlessly, just taking each day as they come. No purpose, no clarity, feeling like something is missing. Friend, let me tell you that Jesus can show you the way. And he can save you from the cancer of sin that lurks in your bones. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we've had this opportunity to look to your word. 
And may we be challenged by the example of your life. May we be moved by the fact that you came to offer the sacrifice so that we can be saved from this sin, saved from this brokenness. Lord, I pray that as we have experienced that, that we would live a life on purpose, a life on mission, a life that knows its end. Work in our hearts in these moments, I pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to remain seated in the spirit of prayer as the team leads us in a song. It's an opportunity for you to reflect, an opportunity for you to respond, to sing in praises or to call on him in prayer. It might be that you recognize that you need to be saved from that cancer of sin. And if so, I invite you to come to the altar. We'd happily pray with you here. It might be that you recognize you're living aimlessly and you need that direction in your life. We'd love to show you the path to Jesus.